Okay, Happy New Year, everybody. Okay, I'll, I'll just start by telling you that when my son asked me to preach, can you hear me? Is the volume okay? I thought to myself, well, this is going to be easy because I've picked a passage which I have invested two months last year, September and October, researching, doing secondary research and writing a 7,000-word essay on this particular passage that I will preach on. So I thought that would be relatively easy, you know, for prep work. But what I didn't realize was actually this passage must be ordained by God because it's a continuation of Pastor Benny's message last Sunday. So those of you who were here last Sunday would know that Pastor Benny spoke about a heart of service to God, correct? He said that attitude, if you recollect well, three C's, he said that our heart of service should be without what? Without calculate, not, we should not be calculative, right? And then we should not be, what else? Pardon? Cannot be competitive. Very good. Someone said the right word. And the third one, you must not be? Conceited. Very good. You all remember your sermon. Actually, statistics show that only uh, most people only remember 5% of every sermon. So you all have done well, actually. So I didn't realize that he would preach on that. Because today, my message will be a continuation of that, which is a hard attitude towards others. All right? Same thing about the heart, but that first one last week is about the first commandment, the first part of the commandment where we are to love the Lord with all our heart and soul, right? And mind and all that. And basically, Deuteronomy 11 says, Moses says, you are to love your Lord with your, not only love him, but you have to love and serve him with all your heart and soul. So if you study the Old Testament, you will find that loving God and serving him, they are inextricably joined together. You cannot love him and not serve him. It's come together. That's why uh, Joshua can say, it's for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, right? So loving him also means serving him. So that's the first half. The second half of the commandment, if you remember John 13 says, a new commandment I give to you, right? That you love one another as I have loved you. And by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So that's the second continuation of his commandment, love God and love others, right? So Pastor Benny has covered love God. Today, I cover love others, okay? So it's, it's uh, really a God-ordained thing because when I chose this topic, it wasn't uh, with any intention. It was just the lazy way out, you know, like I've got a ready-made sermon, so... Let's do that. You see, it's easy for me. Okay, let me pray before we continue. Father, I pray, Lord, that you will help me to preach your word, your son's sermon with accuracy and clarity. Lord, that everyone here and the whole church here will be qualified to enter your kingdom of God. And Father, I pray for myself too, that as Apostle Paul said, lest after preaching to others, I myself be disqualified. So, Father, I just thank you for this opportunity. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, uh, I know Quinton say you should take notes, but I recommend you don't because I go very fast and I cover a lot. So, it's probably better that you download the sermon after this, uh, this Sunday 
and follow through with the Bible. Because like I say, 5% only you can retain, but if you study it with the Bible, you probably will hopefully retain more than 5%. And also for the media people, can you please don't focus your video on me? Can you focus on the PowerPoints? Because what will happen is when people download, they don't want to see me, they need to see the PowerPoints, right? So that they can follow the gist of the sermon. Okay, so the topic today is uh, right, Passport to the Kingdom, the Sermon on the Mount. So the topic is taken from Sermon on the Mount, which actually is covered in Matthew chapters 5 to 7. So if you want to study the Sermon on the Mount, you actually go from chapters 5 chap all the way to chapter 7, and that's the whole Sermon on the Mount. But in a sermon like this, I can only capture a passage from the Sermon on the Mount, and we go deep into the teaching of Jesus. So, the key verse that I have picked is this one. I call it a passport to the kingdom. Jesus says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Quite, quite strong, isn't it? Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter. Very strong word, never enter. So that's quite shocking, right? Because we all always understand that if you accept Christ, you are assured of entering the kingdom of God. But let's see what this passage is about. So I give you the context of the passage. I teach hermeneutics, right? Biblical interpretation is always context, context. You need to study the Bible in context. So this is Jesus' first recorded sermon, preaching from the mount. So straight after, when, as soon as he started his ministry, this is the very first sermon, which is why the Sermon on the Mount is so important. And when he preaches from the mountain, the crowds, the Jewish crowds all there, what do you think they would think about? They would think about Moses, right? Because Moses also brought the law down from a mountain. And here is Jesus uh, and Moses is like a type of Jesus. He's speaking with authority from a mountain. And the crowds there are thinking Moses, Moses, right? So here you have uh, someone very authoritative teaching about the kingdom of God. How do we know it's about the kingdom of God? Because if you look at the inclusion from 429 to 935, and here I have written for you, and he went throughout the, all Galilee teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and affliction among the people. In other words, 429 and 935 has exactly the same word. We call that in theology an inclusion. So everything in between, this is about a same topic. And very clearly, it is about the kingdom of God, correct? And it's what's, this particular verse follows the Beatitudes. So the start of the sermon starts with what we all know is called the Beatitudes. Blessed, 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 right? And then it goes on to the call to be salt and light of the world. He wants all of us to be salt and light of the world. And then he goes on to say, I have not abolished the law. So all the scribes and Pharisees are there watching him to see how he would treat the law, right? Because they are very... Uh, they're very cunning. They're very crafty. They want to catch him, right? And he says, don't think that I am come here to abolish the law. I've come here to fulfill. And he went on to say, uh, do not relax the least of my commandments. He says, there will be judgment if you relax. That means you compromise on the very least of my commandments. So that's the background of how he started on this verse 
in 5.20, he says, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter. So quite scary, right? So it's quite startling. So what happens is you have, again, to look at the context. To be able to understand Jesus' radical uh, teaching, you go to the context, and we need to examine the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. So if Jesus says that our righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees, we need to see what is the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. And here you will see that in Matthew 23, same book, all right, always when you study the Bible, the first Context is the passage itself, before and after. The next context is, for example, if you're reading uh, Paul's epistles, you will go to other Pauline epistles, right? And then the next circle, concentric circle, is you go to the whole New Testament, then the whole Bible. So you keep going out and out. So the first thing you do is study the book itself. So Matthew 23, this is how Jesus described the scribes and Pharisees. There are seven woes. He says, they preach, but they do not practice. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. They type, but they neglect the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. They are hypocrites. Many times in the passage, he calls them hypocrites. He calls them blind guides, whitewashed tombs, clean on outside of the cup, but inside full of greed and self-indulgence, right? Uh, serpents, brood of vipers, not very pleasant names, right? So he calls the scribes and Pharisees, all these, you know, in many ways, very derogatory terms. So our righteousness must exceed that. It should be easy, isn't it? Correct? If, if you're comparing yourself to the scribes and Pharisees, and we are supposed, our righteousness is supposed to exceed that, then you think to yourself, oh, piece of cake, right? Not difficult, but it's not that easy. So we're going to continue to see what happens in his continuing part of the sermon. So what is this surpassing or exceeding righteousness that is a required passport to the kingdom? Remember, he says, without this righteousness, you will never enter. Is this imputed righteousness or outward righteousness? Now, this is a bit of theology that I think everyone who is a Christian must understand, right? So imputed righteousness is when you accept Christ and you're born again, immediately you are imputed by God's grace, uh, the righteousness of our Lord Jesus. So nothing of your own goodness, not the good character you are or what you've done. You have been imputed. They've not earned it, you've got it. That's called imputed. However, there is also what we call an outward, outworked. That means from inside out, righteousness. Now, this is in Philippians 2.12, where Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now... Uh, Oh, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So this is not work for. Remember, the preposition is very important. It's not work for your salvation. Because you can't work for your salvation, all right? It's imputed. But you've got to work out. So whatever you have within you now, the imputed righteousness must now come out, all right? It's, it's got to be outworked. And so... We ask ourselves, is this really, is this really uh, imputed righteousness, this Sermon on the Mount, this whole thing about our righteousness must exceed that of the scribes? Is this imputed or outward? So, again, we look at the context, all right? 
The rest of Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 to 48. Remember, our key verse is 20. Jesus unpacks what this righteousness looks like in six commonly referred to as antithesis, opposites, right? Antithesis. So, the way to understand any part of the Bible is to go to the Bible. The Bible interprets the Bible. That's the best way. Because don't speculate. I always teach my 1830 leaders that don't hypothesis, don't hypothesize, don't speculate. Go back to the Bible because Jesus is a very good teacher. He's a master teacher. He always explains. Even if he says a parable, he explains the parable, right? He doesn't leave you lost. That's, that's our Lord. So in each of these six antithesis, he unpacks his radical demand, demonstrating the true divine intent of Old Testament law for six relational commands. Remember, we're talking about loving others. So why I picked this topic also is because you know our church is supposed to be, we pride ourselves in relationship, isn't it? We say our strength of this church is a very relational. But are we doing relationship according to ourselves or according to Jesus' commands? So we need to do our relationships according to the Sermon on the Mount. And we'll see how Jesus wants us to do relationships, okay? And this is for us to enter into the kingdom of God. So very serious matter. So the first antithesis. Now there are six. I can imagine after this Sunday, you'll forget all six, right? You probably might remember one out of six, which is not good enough. So you've got to go back to your Bible. And like the good Bereans in Acts, they, they study the scripture after they hear a sermon. So you need to do that. So the first antithesis is murder. So he said, you have heard that it was said. I mean, this is Old Testament, right? You shall not murder. Everybody knows that. But I say to you, Jesus says, but I say to you, everyone who is angry and insults his brother will be liable to judgment. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Right? Very radical. So you remember here he's saying, you are offering your gift at the altar. You come to church service, you tithe, whatever, right? But you remember now that something, your brother has something against you, right? So you have offended someone and you know that you have offended someone. And he says, I don't care whether who is right or who is wrong. Leave your gift here, go and be reconciled, correct? So this is the first relational teaching he's uh, Jesus is teaching a sermon on the mount, right? Now, we may not murder. I don't think here we have any murderers. Do we have any murderers here? I don't think so, right? But exceeding righteousness requires dealing with offenses and reconciliation with our church family. Remember, he's talking about brothers. So he's talking about church family. He says, you have to deal with offenses and reconcile with whoever has an offense against you a greater priority than worship. That's very strong, you know. He says, rather than worship me, Jesus says, I'd rather you leave your gift, your go and reconcile. So reconciliation is a very high command. So when we do relationship together, we are a family, we're bound to offend each other, you know. I always tell people, it's like a washing machine. You put all the dirty linen there and you spin. Everybody gets rubbing each other, right? But you come out all clean, Correct? It's fine. You know, you, you go in, you get all tumbled together, you know, you hurt one another maybe. But the issue is to come out clean and that's important. So the reconciliation, Jesus says, has to be uh, really top priority. 
Now, there are two clarifications needed. This is outside of that particular passage. First, he says that if you despise your brother, if you insult him, if you're angry with him, I need to clarify that not to despise others or judge others, this whole issue of judging. Because I find in the ministry that people don't understand. They always use this term, do not judge, do not judge, right? Now, judgmentalism, to judge someone, is different from sober judgment. Because Paul says that we are not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think, but we must think with sober judgment. There is a place for sober judgment. Firstly, you must have sober judgment of yourself. You mustn't think more highly of yourself. A lot of people who look down on people or insult others is because they think they are better, they are righteous, they are the right one, right? So, but you've got to exercise sober judgment and think not so highly of yourself. There's also sober judgment of others. So, for example, if you know of someone who is a liar, who is a thief, or maybe he's a, a con man, or maybe he's got character flaws, whatever character flaws, you use sober judgment. You probably wouldn't want to do a business with him, right? You probably don't want to marry him or her. So it, that's called sober judgment. I mean, God has given us a good mind. We don't say, oh, we mustn't judge. So let's, let's do business even with someone that has a track record of cheating, right? I mean, for goodness sake, we are more wise than that. So sober judgment is different from judgmentalism, correct? The second thing is the, in Galatians 6.1 where it says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression... You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. So I want to highlight that Paul says that who takes the initiative to do reconciliation? From this verse, is it the one who is right and the other person is wrong? Or is there any condition? It says you who are spiritual. So the first person to take the initiative of reconciliation is the one who is spiritual. The mature spiritually the spiritual, spiritually mature person takes the first initiative. It's no condition of who is right or who is wrong. Regardless of who is right or who is wrong, if you are more mature, you take the first step. Okay? Same with husband and wife, by the way. Husband and wife are always quarreling, right? But then the more mature of the two should take the first initiative. And then there will be peace at home. Okay? Now, antithesis number two, adultery. You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, and in brackets I added that, in exceeding righteousness, that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And I underline that because heart is very important here. And then it goes on to say, and I have uh, truncated, so sort of shortened the passage. If your right eye causes you to sin, you all know that, right? What do you do? Gouge it out. If your right hand causes you to sin, what to do? Cut it out, chop it out. And um, you know the Muslims do that, right? So, let's see. Actually, that verse, if your eyes, if your hand, and through my research, and this one I must admit, I have always taught that passage as a hyperbole. That means an exaggeration to get a dramatic effect. In actual fact, when I did my research, it's actually called a first-class conditional statement. In other words, it is a condition that is not true. But how, do I, how do we know it's not true? Because in Matthew 15, 18, and 19, it says sin comes from the heart, not from the eyes, not from the hand. You can gouge your eye, cut your hand, Sin comes from a different source. It comes from the heart. And it says, 
but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. All right? So it's the heart that is the root problem, not your eyes and not your hands. So in a way, Jesus, because he's a master teacher, he uses all these literary techniques. He, a, a real range of, uh, mili- uh, of literary techniques he used to teach, right? To make it interesting. So we know now that the if is not for real. He's trying to say that it's not your eye that is the problem. It's not your hand that is the problem. It's the heart. However, I also want to highlight Matthew 6, where I say the eye feeds the heart. The eye is the lamb of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? So even though the eye is not the, co- it's not the source of sin, it is the window to sin. It's the window to your heart. Do you understand? So those of you who uh, are prone to pornography, you have to be very careful. Because your eye constantly watching pornography will create a heart of lust. And that is where the sin of adultery and lust and all that comes from. Okay? So the eye, remember the eye is very important. So if your eye constantly reading the word of God, guess what? Your heart is full of light. Right? But if your heart is looking at the wrong things, at pornography, at I know some movies are terrible with violence and bloody everywhere then, you know, your, your heart is also full of violence and anger. So that's why when Chris was very young, you know how Roland likes to tell the story. When he was very young, we were not Christians. And the father, I, this time, of course, I accused him. He always put the son in front of the kung fu fights, you know, the violent. So from very young, and both of us were very busy corporate people. He began to practice his kung fu on everybody, his sister, his servant, friends, you know. Because his eye is feasting on violence, right? So that's why we kids, we say we have to censor what they watch because the eye is very important in that sense, okay? Antithesis 3. Now, you know I'm going very rapidly, so if you can follow me, don't worry about the, the PowerPoints. So divorce. It was also said, and I put that in brackets, in Deuteronomy 24, 1-2. to If whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Jesus again contested and said, but I say to you, that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, I need to clarify that because it's like, you know, especially in this present world, there's a lot of divorce going on. Uh, First of all, you need to know the culture. So, the culture at that time, they used this particular Deuteronomic passage as license because that passage says, if you find anything unclean in your wife, you can issue her a certificate of divorce. A certificate of divorce is the official document that allows him to remarry, okay? And of course, the men in those days, you know, the women were all subjugated. They would, anything unclean, you know, like it's very subjective. They, were, they had this license of constantly looking for other women, so they divorce and they marry again, right? And so Jesus is coming from that position and saying that unless you find sexual immorality, you are not allowed to divorce. So he's make, tightening the rules for the Jews, right? And I want to highlight Matthew 19 again from Matthew. Divorce has never been God's will from the beginning. 
Moses had merely permitted, Jesus said he had permitted, Moses had permitted, not condone it, because of the hard hearts of the Israelites. Again, about the hearts. The Israelites' hearts were hard. They just couldn't care less about the wife once they lost their glamour or give you a certificate afterwards, you know? Uh, in addressing the hearts of his disciples, calling them to an exceeding righteousness, Jesus confined valid divorce to adultery. So only one valid divorce. Now, Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 uh, loosens it, liberates it slightly. He says that if you have an unbelieving spouse, wife or husband, who doesn't want you anymore, doesn't want to live with you, you are a free man. In other words, you can also divorce and remarry. So those are the only two conditions in the entire Bible. One is adultery, which is by Jesus. And then Paul added on this other one, which we call abandonment. Right? You are abandoned by your spouse. Your spouse doesn't want you and has to be an unbelieving spouse. If it is a believing spouse, you actually work at the marriage until it works. Okay. Now you have antithesis four, unfulfilled oaths and commitments. And it says here, again, you have heard it was said. He's comparing Old Testament law again. You shall, not, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, that's why it's an antithesis, right? He said, but I say to you, do not take an, uh, an oath at all. Do not take an oath at all. And I'm shortcutting this again, either by heaven or by earth or Jerusalem or by your head. Let what you say be simply yes or no. And there are some verses there that you can cross-reference if you want to. So what does this mean? So we have again to look at the cultural, social context. So to avoid violating commandment number three, which is thou shalt not take the name of the Lord in vain, right? That's the command. The rabbis had developed a complicated system of oaths that replace the divine name with prescribed substitutions. In other words, when they swear, they dare not swear by Yahweh's name because they're not allowed to mention the name of the Lord. So they, they swear by heaven or swear by earth or, you know, they, they put their own substitutions in. The system presented a loophole for the dishonest. They would evade fulfillment of their legal commitments with invalid substitutes, such as that mentioned by Jesus in Matthew 5, 34 to 36. You know, the ones that I mentioned earlier, the ones that said um, heaven, earth, Jerusalem, head. All those were invalid substitutes. So what happened is these Jews that are crafty, they enter into a legal commitment or any kind of promise or commitment, and then they get away out of it through a loophole by saying that the commitment is based on my promise, based on the name of heaven or earth or my head or whatever. But Jesus knows but he's a rabbi too, right? He knows that these are all invalid substitutes. So it's a loophole because when it goes to court, they say, oh, this, this particular basis that you have used, they're not valid. So the whole contract is void. So you, get, you escape your commitment, right? So in that sense, that's what it's meant that Jesus said that your word should be good enough. You don't have to make a promise. You don't have to do an oath, a sworn oath or whatever. If your word is yes, yes, it will be done. If it's no, it will not be done, right? Let your yes be yes and no. That means you're so reliable. You have a heart of integrity that your word is good enough and you can do deals with just based on your word. And he says, so therefore, exceeding righteousness requires us to be consistently and totally honest and reliable to the Lord and to others. So here we are, this topic is about to others, right? So whatever you make a commitment to a friend, a church member, whatever, if you say you're going to turn up 
at Alpha, for example, turn up. All right? This is just a very practical example. If you say you're coming to serve, tearing down the Christmas setting or whatever, turn up. You let your yes be yes, your no, your no. Eventually, people will know your character. They will know that you're reliable. If I ask Auntie Man to do anything, I know she will do it, right? Because 20 years of friendship with her, and I know her yes is yes and no is no. So this is the kind of righteousness that Jesus wants. Now, antithesis number five, retaliation. How are we doing for time? You okay? Are we okay? All right. Antithesis number five, retaliation. You have heard that it was said, and where it said is in Leviticus 24, 19, 20. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Again, Jesus is taking the Old Testament law, and now he said, but I say to you, right? One, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, what are you supposed to do? You all know, right? Turn left cheek, correct? And, but if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, the tunic is actually the shirt that men wear inside. And he says, if anyone commands you or sue you to want your shirt, then what do you have to do? You give him your outer garment, your cloak. And that outer garment, if you do your research, is a very essential garment. It was the garment that was used to keep them warm in the winter, you know, in the cold. And that garment is very expensive. So really, if someone just wants your shirt, you also give him the more expensive and the more essential outer garment, right? And if anyone forces you to go one mile, what are you supposed to do? Go two miles, all right? So this one's very famous. You all know that. So let's have a look. The intent of Lex, this particular passage of let, uh, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, is called Lex Talionis, right? The Lex Talionis was not instituted to accept revenge for the victim, as we commonly think. Its intent was to restrain disproportionate and self-appointed vengeance and to prevent blood feuds and other unlimited retaliation. Now, those of you who watch Chinese movies, soap operas, you know how much retaliation that goes on, sometimes from generation to generation, isn't it? They, they, keep, they have family feuds that goes on, and people kill to kill, and the killing keeps going on. And, and the Lex Talionis was basically instituted to prevent people from punishing or victimizing someone disproportionately to their offense. You understand what I mean? So... Eye for an eye, tooth for tooth is not literal. It means match your uh, punishment with the offense. All right? You don't uh, punish someone who maybe just stole $5 or $1 and send them to jail for 10 years like that. You know what I mean? The proportionate thing. So exceeding righteousness requires us to, inc to counteract injustice with a radically unexpected response. This is Jesus' teaching. He says, instead of uh, retaliation, you return good for evil. Very high calling, right? So it's not as easy as we think. It's not as easy as we say, oh, we can uh, exceed the, the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. Look at what are the commands of Jesus in the context of these six antithesis. Now, the last one, love your enemies. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, right? Uh, again, we have to read this very carefully because the hate your enemy is never in any part of the Old Testament. So obviously, hate your enemy was added in by the Pharisees and scribes themselves. 
And when you do your research, you will find that actually the Qumran, or, uh, the Qumran, the Essenes that live in the Qumran community, they actually taught people to hate Rome. Rome was their enemy, right? And so somehow they sneaked in this and hate your enemy after you shall love your neighbor and hate your... Actually, there's no hate your enemy in Leviticus at all. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, this is very important. So that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. So it's not automatic. It's not because you have been born again, you are accepted into the kingdom, you have imputed righteousness. That doesn't mean it's, you know, hallelujah, we're back. You know, we're in the kingdom of God. It says, to be sons of your father in heaven, you've got to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute. Very hard, right? But this is the, this is the tall, the most highest command. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors and Gentiles do the same. So this is the, I call it the epitome of Jesus' Sermon of the Mount teaching. Loving and praying for our enemies. A requirement to qualify as sons of our Heavenly Father and is unfortunately a passport requirement to his kingdom. Hate your enemy was never part of Leviticus 19.18 and nowhere to be found in the Old Testament. Okay, so I think what Brian shared over the worship about loving others and all that is actually very much in line with the sermon. So Jesus' summary conclusion. At the end of that long passage from uh, 5.17 to 5.48, but a big chunk of passage, he concludes in 5.48, he says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Now that word perfect, you again have to study very carefully, but it's quite frightening. How can we be perfect? We are human with, you know, with a lot of flaws and a lot of uh, vulnerabilities. But that word perfect is actually a word called teleos. And if you study its Old Testament equivalence, it's not so much about moral perfection. Although there's one author that says it means to be blameless. But actually, if you, have, uh, if you like reading, you can read Jonathan Pennington's book on Sermon on the Mount. And he actually goes in to examine what this word means. And it's actually a single, a complete singular devotion to Father God. It's an alignment of external conduct and inner heart attitude. A righteousness that surpasses the hypocrisy of the scribes and Pharisees. So, you remember early part of the sermon, Jesus called the scribes and Pharisees hypocrites, right? And he says the cup outside, very clean, very nice. Inside, rubbish. And, and what Jesus is aiming at, at the end is to say that when we love him, we must love him with a full alignment of our heart and our conduct and our lives, right? You don't, you don't live your life like everybody, oh, you know, you're great, you, you know, you're godly. But inside your heart, like the Pharisees or the scribes, is full of garbage, full of sin or whatever. So what Jesus is saying when he says, Therefore, and that word therefore is very important. It concludes the entire passage, right? After he teaches you everything, he says, you therefore, that means that's the final uh, conclusion. You have to align your heart with your external conduct. The two must not, you must not be hypocrites like the Pharisees and scribes. And in that doing, you exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. Because the scribes and Pharisees, external righteousness is number one, right? They are rabbis. They have 600 over regulations that teach you how to obey the law. Not only do you have to obey the law, they added another few hundred. 
rules and they are always watching Jesus to make sure he doesn't break the law. They're all about law. They're all about rules and regulations. But inside their heart, their cup is dirty. Okay? So this is where Jesus is heading. So to summarize, the exceeding righteousness is unpacked in six relational settings. And it's important for our church, particularly important for our church, because we pride ourselves in being exceedingly good in relationships. Right? But let's do our relationships according to the Sermon on the Mount. Number one, reconciliation is a priority. Forget about your ego, you know. You're not, no, no issue of arrogance or whose face or it's loss or whatever. The important thing is reconciliation. Don't even come to Sunday service unless you do reconciliation. It basically, if I have to reword it, you know, leave your gift at the altar. Come and, you know, go and do reconciliation first. And then high morality, untainted by lust. Remember, pornography and all that, be careful. Your heart is the source of lust. Honoring covenantal marriage. So Jesus' teaching on marriage is very high calling. He says, except for sexual immorality, no divorce. Uh, and those that do allow, that the church sometimes, you know, we do marry people who have been divorced, but we only do that when they have been divorced before they came to the Lord. So they didn't know any better. So they, they had divorced because they, they didn't understand covenantal marriage and all that. And then when they come to church, they get converted. We, we actually do not prescribe divorce, you know, unless there's either Paul's condition or Jesus' condition. And then to be honest and reliable, don't try and uh, get out of commitments. You know, let your word be good. Your yes be yes, your no be no. Repaying good for evil and no retaliation. That's very hard call, right? You're not allowed to tip for tap, but for fat, that kind of thing. You really have to go beyond and not just even it out. You've got to repay good for evil. I mean, in different contexts, it's different ways, right? And then the hardest and the highest call is to love and pray for our enemies, which actually, I mean, I struggle too. Everybody struggles, right? It's very hard to love and pray for those who insult you, persecute you, misunderstand you, judge you, right? Whatever, whoever is that has, uh, it's not lovable. It's very hard to love them. So, but yet Jesus says, our righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. So if you haven't heard anything I said, because there's just too much, I guess, you know, just remember that our righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. Right? So that is important because it's not just saying the sinner's prayer, repent, and then you get into the kingdom of God. Because the hard teaching of Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount is that you need both imputed and outward righteousness. So, finally, I will conclude with saying that an exceedingly righteous heart posture towards others is birthed out of a perfect or aligned, undivided devotion to Christ our Lord. You want to have the right heart posture towards others, particularly in the church, because Jesus has said in John 13, by this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another, right? So how can we be his disciples if even within the church, we don't have love for one another? So here he's saying that an exceedingly righteous heart posture, our heart posture must always be positioned such that we remember that our righteousness must be exceeding that of the scribes and Pharisees. And it must be, it can only be birthed out of an aligned, undivided devotion to Christ our Lord.
Okay, so I will close with prayer now. We will pray that for all of us, including myself, that we will qualify to enter the kingdom of God. Yeah, it's not an easy task. I know it's easier to preach that we will go to heaven. Every one of us, you know, once we said our sinner's prayer, we're okay, we will go to kingdom of God. But I reckon we need to know God's word, like YC said, you know, in his, uh, in his spill on the communion. We need to be guided by the word of God, the truth. And even if the truth is painful or hard or difficult, it's better to follow Jesus' teaching than to follow our hearts, correct? Because our hearts are very deceptive. They will, it will keep telling us we're okay, we're fine. In actual fact, we have to keep examining our hearts like, like King David says, Lord, examine my heart, check my heart whether it's clean or not, right? So it's a prayer that all of us need to do all the time. Lord, examine my heart. Father, God, is the only one in the Bible that examines the intents of our heart. Nobody can know the intents of our hearts, right? You can even con your loving husband or wife. You can con your children, but God knows. So we have to constantly check our heart to make sure that our heart is utterly, totally undivided submission to the Word of God. And that's the way God wants it. That's the way Jesus taught on the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, let me pray. Father, I thank you for this sermon, Lord. I thank you that your truth will go out and achieve what it has, what you intended to do, Lord. And Father, I just pray that all of us will qualify to enter your kingdom because we all love you and we want to do that which is right before you. So Father, I thank you, Lord, that the word is received with grace, is understood, and that it will not stumble anybody but will challenge all of us to rise to your high calling in Christ Jesus. Amen. Thank you. Thank you so much, Auntie Peggy.